Well, as you, <clears throat> as you just heard, we are in Psalm 73. If you are with us as a guest, if you are not familiar with where we've been, we've been taking the beginning of, really historically, almost every one of our years, we try to begin in the book of Psalms and take a, a fresh breath of just some theme that, that resonates through the Psalms. There are many and one of the themes that we're trying to enjoy this year as we start 2023 is the theme of what it means to be at home with God, to be in God's presence and to truly find that an experience of, of being at home. I don't say this a lot to you, but I almost cried a couple times over the last, uh, last couple days. We were out with Christine's family to witness Christine's um, brother's son officially becoming Eliza. And they're the point at which the, um, oh, it's a big story. It would take too long to tell too much of it. But essentially, um, there were five siblings in the courtroom that were being adopted into two families. And the little boy that was being adopted to join his sister in my brother-in-law's family uh, used to be named Shadow. And he is going to be named Carter from this point forward. And little Carter was told a number of things through the dialogue. The lawyers asked questions of why did Christopher and Lindsay want to bring Carter into their home. And they answered those questions. He was asked, does Carter get along well in the family? And Christopher said, oh, yes. And they said, well, I'm, I'm under oath, so... He gets along like a normal sibling, which seemed a more honest answer to him. And I thought that was, that was well put. But the point at which I teared up, both in the declaration for Carter and then later the declaration bringing his three natural siblings into a different home, was the point at which the judge said that the one who was named Shadow is going to be named Carter Luke Lisey going forward. That Luke, right? Luke, okay, got the the middle name right. I don't think Carter's watching this, so I think he's going to be okay, their little five-year-old cousin now. But the point at which the judge was declaring that this little boy who didn't functionally have a home, who was a ward of the state, is now due all of the care, protection, and inheritance of a natural child in the family. And, oh, I, I teared up for the good that is ahead of Carter, the good he's known, the good that's ahead of him, but also for the picture that was there of the fact that that's exactly what happened in all of our stories. We were children of wrath. We did not belong in the family of God. We didn't enjoy any and didn't have any hope of an inheritance other than what our deeds and our master was earning for us. And God interrupted all that and brought us home. And that's what we've been trying to enjoy here in January is the fact that we are we belong to God and we belong at home with him. That's an easy thing for us to forget. And I hope these last few weeks have reminded you of that a little bit more fully as we've been in Psalm 84 and 23 and 90 and 68. And we prayed for Michael today. He was going to be bringing the word for us. Um, Please continue to pray for him. Migraines, especially with temperature and pressure changes, have just been almost unavoidable for him lately. And so he even just said, I see Sarah nodding her head, understanding exactly what that's like. I can, I can pray with words, but without a real earned empathy. Because I've never struggled with something like that. And when I hear those that do, um, so please just be, 
holding Michael up uh, this week. There's a medicine he's hoping to get that hasn't been approved. His old insurance company approved it willingly. His new insurance company is a little less. Hope I'm not violating any HIPAA laws there, Michael. So That said, we want to keep praying for him, but we also want to just uh, one more Sunday enjoy the fact that we are home with God. We've been in Psalm 73 before. If you were familiar with it and if you were asking, wait, have we, have we done this before? Yes, yes, we have. Uh, it is one of the things that when we're changing preachers last minute, sometimes we're going to revisit old Psalms. But there is something to the end of Psalm 73 that I really want us to focus on today. And so as you see in your bulletin, the main thing we're going to be trying to dive into this morning is what is it exactly that protects us from, to use the Psalms words, from our brutish our ignorant and embittered selves. Because if, like Asaph, we can relate to this idea that sometimes it just feels like you've given up more than God has given you, that it has cost you more to serve God, and you're at a season where it looks like the rest of the world just looks like it has it a lot better, then I can tell you, you are incredibly biblical in that struggle, in that that struggle is in the Bible. And that the one who was struggling was inspired by the Spirit to detail out his struggle. We're going to do a quick flyby of the struggle. You heard it as Olivia was reading it. You may be familiar with the psalm, but it begins as Brad prayed. And boy, thank you, Olivia, for reading. Thank you, Brad, for praying. I just kind of feel like I'm getting up to the plate here, and I've got like six runners on third base just ready to come home. Like, I don't have to do anything but bunt the ball. This is so great. Uh, we're, just, we're just ready and prepped for the sermon here. So it begins, truly, a word that feels at the end, you realize, very tested. But truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, Then the direction of the psalm changes with the first word of verse 2. But, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. It's the nearly and the almost that I want to accent. Asaph looks around and he feels kind of like we have felt probably at times. Like God's asked for a lot, doesn't feel like he's given up much. If I were to track out the future, it looks like it might be better to not follow God than to follow God. If I look at my past, I see it might seem a little bit like people have done better by not following God than I've done by giving up things for him. Why is God always asking for something and not giving back? Why is he not returning? Verse 3 details that out. He says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he's looking, he's seeing that wicked and arrogant people are prospering, and inside he's jealous of that prosperity. He is envious of what's going on. And if you're saying, Darren, are you just going to read the whole psalm to us? Yeah, uh, more or less, because this thing just sort of preaches itself, doesn't it? If you just read what he's saying, rather than let's judging Asaph, let's just sort of relate to the guy, because I get where he's coming from. He's already declared God is truly good. And he's already declared in verse 2, I have almost slipped. I nearly stumbled. Let me tell you how it happened. I got jealous because I looked and I saw other people doing better. 
the moment I enter this psalm, sometimes is the way that I've described it already, kind of in group, right? Sort of a sociological thing. I'm part of this group. It doesn't seem to be doing as well as that group. And that's the way that he's talking about it. Another way to enter the psalm is a little bit more personally, relationally. There may be people in your life that you would look at and say they're not part of a large swath of arrogant, you know, wicked people. But I would look and I would feel the arrogance and the wickedness of the way other people have treated me. And I've asked, why in the world, Lord, have you allowed them to still do well when they've done that to me? That may be a way in which we insert ourselves a little rightly into this psalm and feel that sense of being able to relate to Asaph a little bit more. That envy can be treacherous. And it leads, if we skip from verse 3 out to verse 12, it leads Asaph to come to this conclusion. After everything that Olivia read there from 4 through 11, comes to this conclusion. Behold, let me show you the conclusion I've arrived at. These are the wicked. They are always at ease and they are increasing in riches. So do you see them? They're doing great. I want you to behold them. Now, behold me, verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean. All in vain have I washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. We started this service trying to remember what we wake up to every morning. Fresh, new mercy from a God who's faithful. That is so not where Asaph is right now. Right now, Asaph is saying in verse 14, I wake up every day to the reminder that my life is not as good as the people who are not following God. My life feels like I'm basically stricken and rebuked. That's what happened yesterday. And as I wake up today, that's the way I feel. I feel like I've been beaten down and I feel like I've been chewed out. And that's the way it feels like life is just treating me right now. And so when I look, has there been any reward to the purity I've tried to dedicate myself to? Is there any reward to the fact that I have sought to be innocent and clean? He says, no, there is no reward. It has been vanity. It has been absolutely meaningless to use the language of Ecclesiastes, all in vain have I kept my heart clean. But then he transitions and recognizes in verse 15, if I keep going this way, I'm going to be that guy. Have you met that guy? He's probably a little older. He's probably got a few years behind him. He's probably new in a few sorrows. And he's the kind of guy you want to keep your kids away from. Because when he looks back over his life, he is just leading kids down the wrong path. Because all he's talking about is how hard his life is, how bad things have gone. There's a certain sense that if you had any impressionable ones, you so wouldn't want to bring them around that guy. And Asaph's like, I'm that guy. I'm about to be that. It's okay. We're, we're referencing the next generation, Eric. You can leave him in. 
Asaph says, if I had said, I will speak thus. Asaph says, if I become that guy, if I really give the testimony through my attitude and my words that God is unfaithful despite how faithful I've been, that every morning I wake up to problems and trouble, that everything in my past is showing how unrewarding God is and how meaningless a life of obedience is, I'm going to become that guy and I don't want to be that guy. I said, if I would speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Then another key word right there at the beginning of verse 17, until... Everything up till 17 is him saying, truly God is good. That's the truth. And I ain't living it. I'm not feeling it. I am struggling up against the injustices of life. He repeats the exact same problem then in verse 21. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you And then changes his tune there. But nevertheless, it's that 16 and 17 dynamic. Here's what's going on inside me. I am weary trying to make sense of this until, or the other way he says it in verse 21 and 22 is, I'm like my dog. I'm just like an animal that I've been taking care of. What does it ever learn? When you do good, you get a treat. And when you do bad, you get whipped. That's the way it works. That's the only language that dogs have. If I do the right thing, I get a treat. And here's the problem. Asaph has been doing the right thing. Where's his treat? Why are all the disobedient dogs out there getting all the rewards? Why is God not giving him what he's deserved? And Asaph realizes, oh my goodness, I cannot be that way. I'm thinking like a dog. I'm thinking like a beast. I'm brutish and ignorant. I should probably mature a little bit beyond what an animal would think of its master when I think of my God. And I was going that way, verse 17, until this is the way I was stuck, but nevertheless. And as as much as I don't want to harp on this, I do think that this is the massive struggle. This is why we gossip. Because things don't feel fair and we got to tear other people down so that we can feel better, right? Why? Verses 1 through 17. This is why lust strikes. It's why adultery hits. It's why people are deceptive. It's why tax fraud takes place. It's why we depart from God when we know the right path. Because up to this point, we get brutish, we get ignorant, it feels wearisome and tiring to follow God. And so we say, well, then I'm going my own way. If you were to meet Adam and Eve as they turned from embracing the goodness of being near God to the less goodness of knowing what's right and wrong through a path that God had already said, don't do, you could diagnose their souls through this. Yeah, that seems like maybe a good God, but boy, shouldn't we question his goodness up to this point? That's what Asaph has been doing, questioning the goodness and the closeness and the nearness, the reliability, the faithfulness of God. 
He's looking about what he hasn't had. And given the fact that I think we struggle there more, right now I'm, I'm wanting to put together a sermon series that I think we're going to get into. The elders and I are going to talk about this a little bit more. But I'm hoping we can get into studying the book of Proverbs, where what we'll see is that there's usually a cause and effect aspect to life. And understanding what the Bible puts forward is wisdom and the rewards of wisdom. And then to immediately follow that up with the book of Ecclesiastes. Where we see that sometimes all of those things get turned around on their head. That time and death and injustice, they actually take place. And we can't get guarantees that we think we can get from the book of Proverbs. We'll try to squeeze the two of those together. And then after we're done with that, we're going to take a look at the book of Job, where we have one identified as righteous, who gets treated horribly and tries to defend himself the whole way. And then God shows up and says, well, let's question your logic a little bit here. Honestly, I think that a good three months doing that together, it's going to squeeze some functional heresy out of us. And hopefully we can be replaced with a sovereign God who's good, who we can't predict. Because I think that we live in these few verses of Psalm 73 a little bit more functionally than we'd like. So what we want to do this morning, though, with that in view, is, and don't worry, we're going to get back into Mark. It's not like I'm going to push off Mark 13 forever. We'll get into Mark. We'll end Mark around Easter. It'll be after that that we'll hopefully take some time in the wisdom literature. But from Job... Here's one of the things we might read. It profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. God destroys both the blameless and the wicked. He mocks at the calamity of the innocent. We don't have a lot of worship songs written over uh, that verse, do we? What advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Their houses are safe from fear, and no rod of God is upon them. Oh, tough verses. These are the moments that in past sermons, I think I've heard some amens from the back corner over there. Amen. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate it. But when I understood, or when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Verse 17, were you wondering what the until was? Here's the until. Here's where he goes. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. The first thing we see in this psalm is as Asaph begins to make the turn for us, get off the slippery slope and come back to the rock, is this. We are reminded of reality in God's assembly. When we come back together with the people of God in front of the word of God, we are reminded that everything we were just thinking and hearing was a lie. And we remember reality once again. It's what we seek to do as we structure our service. As I'm thinking with Keith and I'm thinking with Phil about what do we do when we gather together? I want these first few songs to just be memories, reminders of things we need to remember because our memories are really poor. There's a DNA in fallen humanity that gets us back to a brutish state that makes us think we have to earn love that makes us think that we have to do some sort of repentance, not repentance, but sort of, we, we have to figure out a way to atone for all of our sins. We want to remember something different. It's exactly what Asa said happens for him. I was in such a wearisome place 
until I went to the sanctuary of God and then I discerned therein. What did he remember? Verse 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. He says, I was in a treacherous, slippery place. I was almost stumbling. But at the end of the day, when I came back and I remembered reality again with God, what I realized is they're in a dangerous place. (coughs) Excuse me. It looks like they are in a really rock-solid environment like Job was feeling, but how they are destroyed, verse 19 in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. You ever had one of those dreams? Oh, you have. I mean, whether you want to admit it or not. That for a brief second, however long it actually took neurologically for that whole dream to take place in your brain, You actually bought into the reality of your dream? Isn't that the weirdest moment to wake up to? You wake up, and whether the dream was good or bad, you recognize, I can't fly. In this world, I cannot fly. And for a brief second, this phantom dream that I have was that my ability to fly was falling away from me. And I, though I could fly for a little bit, oh, my jet engine was giving out and I couldn't fly anymore. When have I ever flown like that in my life? I never have. But for a moment, I believed the dream was true. That's the way dreams are. They delude us for a second into buying into realities that we have no basis for really thinking are true. And that's exactly the way it is to live in this world right now where the righteousness of God hasn't finally been established, but he's waiting. Why is he waiting? You hear, you hear the, the saints in Revelation crying out, oh Lord, how long? We were slaughtered, how long? And God says, why would you, why would you make this delay seem like something you would despise in God as though it's weakness? Why does God delay? Because he's kind. You realize what would have happened to you if he hadn't delayed until the moment when you opened your eyes to mercy and grace? When he opened your eyes to mercy and grace? If we despise the delay, then none of us are saved. But the only way anyone gets saved is that God delays. He waits. But while waiting, we live in this dream world of wickedness where it seems like the ultimate reality is that the wicked are always going to win. And Asaph says, that is a lie. And when I, just to use, you know, blunt language, when I went to church, I figured out, I woke up. God, you, like a dream when one awakes, Lord, you rouse yourself and you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, When I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. That's what happens when we live in the dream world. When we forget reality, things are so bizarre. But they seem so normal. It's not till we hear God's truth declared. It's not till we come back and celebrate grace once again. And the dream blows away that God rouses himself and says, hey, my people, wake up to me. Let me remind you of what's true. You've been living in a dream world for a week. Here we are. We're back again. I have the final say over this world. They don't. And Asaph remembers that and says, okay, it's when I went into the sanctuary of God. The question is, guys, this week, where will you live? 
Paul Tripp says it this way, it's easy for us to say that we're living for God when in fact at the street level of our lives we are so often shaped by the anxious pursuit of other things. Asaph wasn't getting them and anxiety was rising up in his heart. Why? Because he came down from the sanctuary and he's living in the fogs of the streets. And he was having trouble understanding what was going on. It's the way this week is going to be for you again. What you read and see online, what you hear through commercials, what others generally around you when you go to work and you go to school are going to be living for is the dream world. And we want to not live there because, frankly, the people of God don't win there. Asaph's not wrong about the dream. What he was wrong about was that he thought it was real. Nevertheless, turning into verse 23, The second thing that we see here in this psalm, not only is that we are, (coughs) excuse me, got to get a drink. It's not only that we remember reality again, it's that we're strengthened in suffering in God's presence. And he says it this way, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Remember the transition in Psalm 23? It was when he went through the valley that everything in the psalm shifted from the Lord is my shepherd, and here's what he's doing, to this is what you're doing, and this is the way I feel about you. There's something that Asaph is saying very, very similar here. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you receive me to glory. So whom, verse 25, have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. How does he get... From verse 16 to verse 26. How does he get to the spot where he's able to say, yeah, I'm failing. My strength is withering on one level. But God, my real portion, is ultimately strengthening me in a way that suffering can't touch. It's this simple. He remembers who he's with. Just like I won't fear any evil because you are with me, Asaph is coming back to God and he is speaking of God holding him, guiding him, and ultimately receiving him. And he looks back over the course of his life and says, oh my goodness, I didn't have all that stuff. That's okay. It's really okay. If he's going to be receiving me into glory, then none of that really mattered. That dream world and and the scorecard of that dream, it really didn't count at the end of the day. Because there is, verse 25, nothing on earth that I desire besides you. This is David in Psalm 68. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Sorry, that's David in uh, Psalm 23, actually, I think. David in, uh, in Psalm 68 says, God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. 
Moses in Psalm 90 says, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generation. The sons of Korah in Psalm 64, in, in Psalm 84 said, my soul longs, yes, my soul faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Those are verses that we write songs over. Why? Because you already hear all the other songs. The dream world songs are the ones you already hear all the time. You just need to forget them, to regularly forget them, and to let your soul once again sing these songs. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. What does God's presence that way do for us? It strengthens us when we suffer. The third thing we sing as, De, or as Asaph comes to a conclusion of verse 27, is that ultimately we are content in the closeness of the protection that God brings for us. It's where he uses that familiar word refuge. Listen to it here. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. David's ultimately able to say is something more true that where our souls go on the shallow level when you see a nice car drive by or you drive past a nice house or you hear somebody else's reputation. It's kind of built up in a way and your soul on that shallow level says, oh man, that'd be good. Oh man, that'd be good. Man, that'd be really living right there. It's just to be able to know that kind of a life, to be able to enjoy that kind of pleasure, to be able to transfer myself from this reality into that one, man, that would be good. Those are the shallow claims of the dream world. But coming back to God, being with God, what he's ultimately able to say is that for me, it's good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge so that when kids are coming behind me, they don't hear some grumpy, old, embittered, dog-like old man who's just cranky about the injustices of life. When they come by, (laughs) here's the amen, Bill. Make the Lord your refuge. Trust in the Lord. Blow away the dreams and find contentment and satisfaction with him so that we can tell of all of his works. Here's what Psalm 73 doesn't have. It's just a testimony. It's really all it is. It's a guy telling his story. Saying these are things I want to forget. These are the things I want to remember. And these are the things I want to speak about. He doesn't come back and say, oh, people, oh, Israel, oh, house of God, do these things. But sometimes that's enough, isn't it? I remember when Christine and I were first raising Zach and Zoe, and we were with a bunch of other school teachers, and we were, we were, <coughs> we were in a party. But we were also surrounded by a lot of different advice, and much of it wise, much of it good but it was very hard for us to try and figure out how do we apply this very objective advice to the subject rea- subjective reality of our kids. And one of the things we were trying to think through is, should you let a kid cry himself to sleep? Or should you put a kid, you know, should you let a kid, uh, you know, 
comfort a kid so that he sleeps and then put him down. Oh boy, if you read some books, your kids are going to go postal if you do it the wrong way. And we were a little afraid. We were a little fearful because we had one who liked to basically fall asleep and he did a good job. And we had another one who wasn't so good at that. And we were having trouble. We were really trying to figure out, should we do exactly the same thing with the first one or the second one that we did with the first one? Because it worked with the first one. What is wrong with the second? Not, not at all, right? We know who won that race. But it was a simple conversation we had with someone. Just talking through the anxiety of this. How do we raise two kids that are different? How do we honor the differences and still be wise about the way that we're doing things? And it was just a mom holding her baby. And she was talking about that. And she said, you know, for us, they're only little so long. So I'm kind of content holding my little one. Now, I'm not giving you parenting advice. But I'm saying that testimony was incredibly freeing. It helped us understand how to prioritize all the other wisdom that we had received. It helped us try to figure out how to approach Zoe as a unique little girl and not like the other boy that we had. It it helped us and freed us simply because I heard this woman's story and then I was able to apply wisdom in light of it. I was able to be motivated on because of it. I think that's what this psalm does for us. There's nothing really that he tells us to do except for just hear the way that I was in danger and hear the way that I was rescued. And sometimes, guys, we get to follow his example. Telling others of his works sometimes is as simple as just talking about how your soul's in danger and how you find help from God. Not having to be the end of Psalm 73 to everyone, but sometimes not also just being the beginning of Psalm 73, telling people, oh, it's hard, I understand, it's easy. We can be the kind of people maybe who trend to the beginning or trend to the end. The good thing about Psalm 73 is it's both. It says, this is what's tough, and I get it, but this is how God helped me, and I want to tell you this story. But... Beyond that, if you're looking for something to do, join me in Hebrews chapter 10. The same confidence of what happens when we're with God, it motivates the author of Hebrews to be able to say this, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, here's the thing to do, everybody. Draw near. That's it. It's good to be with God. So here's the thing to do. Go be with God. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance with faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without favoring, without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. Whether we're struggling or whether we're prospering, whether we're envious or whether we're confident, what a great testimony have at the end of our days. Guys, it's good to be near God. So let's go to him together. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the fact that when you wanted us to hear your word, you used the words of those that were struggling to do it. 
We're grateful for assertions of faith and hope. Confessions of what we believe that are rock solid for us. And we're also grateful to hear the testimony of how others went from shaky ground to solid. How they went from doubting and accusing to rejoicing and sharing the truth. Lord, that feels like our struggle too often. Lord, I pray, I pray that you would help us no matter where we are in this psalm to remember, Lord, to be strengthened. And ultimately at the end of the day to have confidence to share our story because we're content in you. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take communion in a little while. One of the great things about us taking communion together in the midst of this next set of psalm, songs is that it deliberately says you didn't do a great job of this. You didn't. But grace and mercy exist for the past and for the future. So that's what we're going to do uh, together in a little bit. Phil's going to lead us through. Uh, so let's stand and sing as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. <laughs>